There is a dating method that pathologists can use to determine how long before the compromising of the blood supply occurred. But he was able to say three days beforehand. We know that Jesus died on the Friday. And a theologian told me, you know that when we receive communion, we receive Jesus at the moment of the resurrection. So in other words, that microscopic slide was giving us a teaching on the nature of the Eucharist. What if I told you that I was able to give you, not me, but someone was able to give you proof, absolute scientific proof, that transubstantiation is real, that Jesus is actually present in the Blessed Sacrament, that Jesus is truly in Holy Communion? That sounds kind of weird. Wouldn't that answer sort of the great Protestant-Catholic debate over transubstantiation? Wouldn't that make a massive difference in the world. That's actually what we have. We have exactly that. That's why you're going to want to stay tuned for this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. It is with someone who has the actual scientific proof. But let me just go through what's in the Bible already about it. We know that St. Paul already said, you know, when you drink the cup of the Lord, do not drink his blood. Are you not partaking in the blood of the Lord? Yes, you are. He said, when you are guilty, for, if you receive unworthily, you are guilty of the body of the Lord. People might say, oh, that's sort of hinting, you know, Jesus said, like, I'm like a, the door to heaven. He's not an actual door. You don't knock on him. You know, he's the way. Yeah, he's not the actual road. You sort of go by him. But no. Well, actually, there's a very different thing when it came to the Eucharist. It's especially the case, or can be seen especially in John 6. If you look at John 6 in the latter half of the chapter, it's the only place in the scriptures where disciples of Christ walked away from Christ. I'll go through it with you, actually. Here, starting at verse 45, Jesus says, Everyone that heard the Father has learned and comes to me, not that any man had seen the Father, but he who is of God, he's seen the Father. Amen, I say to you that he that believes in me has everlasting life. And this is because the Jews were already murmuring. He said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. But get this. This starts in verse 48 of John 6. I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the desert and are dead. But this is the bread which comes down from heaven. If any man eat of it, he may not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of of the world. So that he, he goes on and says it like three or four times, but then he comes to the real crux and says, the bread I will give is my flesh. So, of course, the Jews who had strictures against cannibalism, especially drinking of any kind of blood, freak out. And they say, in verse uh, 53, the Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so, Jesus, being a good God and holy Savior, would, of course, explain it to them. He would, of course, say something like, oh, it's just a symbol, guys. I'm not talking about not giving you my flesh to eat, right? Wrong. Here's what Jesus says. He says, amen, amen, I say to you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. So, in the face of them questioning. And he always knows what they're questioning. It's not like it's secret to him. Even if they don't say it out loud, he knows what they're thinking. He says, oh, no, 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 no. He goes and piles it on. It gets even worse, actually. He says, 
The next verse, He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood has everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So he says it again in the face of that, just what, to rub it in? How can that be a good and kind and loving God if he's going to just rub it in? But he's not done. He goes on again. He says, For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And then again, He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, the same also shall live by me. We're up to what? Him repeating this, rubbing it in five times, six times now? He goes on. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eats this bread shall live forever. And then get this. Here for me is the real kicker. He sa- the, the scriptures say, many therefore of his disciples. Now, disciples are the followers. They're the ones who already believe. They're the ones who are with him. Not just the Jews, not the Gentiles who might be around. These are disciples, those who are with him already, following him. He says, it says, many therefore of his disciples, hearing it said, this saying is hard and who can hear it? And then the scriptures say, just in case we wondered, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at this, said to them, what's he going to say? He's going to say, guys, hello, I'm not going to make you eat my body and drink my blood. It's a symbol. It's not real. It's a symbol, not for real. No, he doesn't do that. Nope, nope. He knows what they're thinking. The scriptures tell us he knows, if you're wondering. And he says this, does this scandalize you? If then you shall see the Son of Man ascend up to where he was before. So (laughs) he's saying to them, that scandalizes you because I said you're going to eat my flesh? Well, if that scandalizes you, what's going to happen when you see me ascending to the throne of God? Well, he goes on. It's the spirit that quickens the flesh, profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you that do not believe. Now, this is Jesus speaking, but there's some of you who do not believe. And the scriptures explains what he's saying there by saying, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that did not believe and who he was that would betray him. And he said, therefore, did I say to you that no man comes to me unless it be given him by my father. And after this, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. That's huge. His disciples, his followers, went back and walked no more with him. That means went away from Jesus, not to return. How sad is that? Because when you go away from Jesus, you go to eternal perdition. You lose Jesus, which means you lose your salvation. How cruel would he have to be to not run after them if it wasn't a real truth, if it was just a symbol? How cruel would he have to be to let them walk away thinking, oh my gosh, this guy is going to make us eat his flesh? If it was only a symbol, he could have stopped them right away. Guys, hello, it's a symbol. Just like I'm, I said, I'm a door. You're not knocking on my head. Hello. No, 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 no. He didn't do that. In fact, it gets even one step worse. Listen to this. Jesus says to the 12, will you also go away? Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have known that thou art the Christ, the son of God. What's super interesting there is Jesus is willing to lose even the 12 for this truth of his true presence in the blessed sacrament. He turns to them and says, are you also going to go away? Meaning I'm not going to change this even for you. And Peter might as well have said, Lord, I have no idea what you're talking about, but you're God. His words were, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We're in a situation today where we have that same disbelief not only in the whole wide world, which is rank 
even among Christians and even among Catholics, so very few believe the true presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. So very few believe the truth of transubstantiation. God has intervened. God has intervened in the world now in science to prove it. This is the John Henry Weston Show. You're going to want to stay tuned for this one. Hey there, friends. I just wanted to tell you about something in case you didn't already know it. LifeSite is in partnership with a group called St. Joseph's Partners because in today's day and age where things are getting more and more strange out there, we want to be sure that, you know, we have some reserves of gold and silver so that if debanking happens, which has happened before and, and seems to have gone on with the truckers and everything else, that we at least have some backup. Um, and so there's been a lot of investing in gold and silver. We wanted to find a company, though, that we could trust with our investments like that. And St. Joseph's Partners is such a company. Obviously, by their name, you know that they're Catholics, and we know that they're very, very faithful indeed. You can go check out the shows I did with Drew Mason, who is the founder of St. Joseph's Partners. But also, I wanted to tell you about a neat little project we did. And this is really for both support of LifeSite News, but also for gifts for those people who sort of have everything and you wonder what you can get for them. Well, we minted a coin, uh, a silver coin, and it's a one ounce silver round, they call it. It has uh, LifeSite on the front for our 25 year anniversary that we're celebrating, but also on the back, it commemorates the overturning of Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs decision. So it's a collector item coin and uh, encourage you to grab one for yourself, grab one as a gift for that person who seems to have everything else, they might like it very much. And uh, please support us at LifeSite News by getting our coin. Uh, we've just printed under 10,000 of them, so it's a collector item, a limited edition. God bless you and thank you. Ron Tesoriero, welcome back to the program. Thanks, John Henry. Pleased to be back here and to be able to talk about this subject. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, Ron, you have a fascinating thing. I mean, last time we talked about how you were sort of there in a way to give the whole wide world a the Doubting Thomas experience. Here, watch. These are his wounds. In a similar kind of way, you have the ability, you've filmed and went to scientists to film the ability to prove the true presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, something that's so controversial today that so many Christians, so many even Catholics who are supposed to believe it, don't believe it. And yet, you have the proof on video. Please explain it to us. Well, I was really privileged to have been able to uh, have the opportunity to work on the investigation of the Eucharistic miracle of Buenos Aires of 1996. I believe that that story, uh, the outcome, the facts and the findings, will be one of the most significant events in the history of Christianity. Now, that's a big claim. And in the course of this interview, we'll unfold the reasoning. reasoning. Uh, briefly, the story goes that a priest found an abandoned communion host in his church after Mass in, in um, a parish in Buenos Aires. He was placed in a bowl of water. It um, then locked in the tabernacle, and after a few days, it began to lose what appeared to be blood. The archbishop uh, organized for a photographer to take photos of the sample as it progressively transformed 
over a number of days. When I was asked to come and assist in the investigation, it was three days after, three, three years after the actual happening. It was in 1999. And when I was given this task, I was very conscious of the fact of all those things that you spoke about, that no one would ever believe that a communion host could bleed and, 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 and act in the way that this one did. I was very conscious of the, the worldview that we have, which is based on the Enlightenment, that you know, you're not going to be able to find anything that answers questions uh, in faith. It has to be through science, and that science doesn't believe these things happen. There is no God. Waste of time. Don't waste your money. I was very conscious that I would have to meet a critical world if this story had, had legs, if it was true. So right from the beginning, as a lawyer, I interviewed on film all the key witnesses before any testing. They gave me the accounts of what happened, um, and there was a certain number of people involved in that um, series of interviews. And then ultimately, when it came to uh, taking the sample, I was very careful to ensure that every aspect of the, uh, the, pro the progress of the work was filmed. The taking of the sample, the, the um, identifying it, and then following in the chain of custody all the way through. Now, from that time, it's been now 20 years of investigation of what that substance was that we took away to examine. We did a series of DNA tests on it. We also did pathology testing. Um, and then later we did advanced DNA testing, which I'll come to. But what was interesting was that um, we uh, had to try and identify the substance. And we, the, the, most, the key scientist who worked on the investigation was a New York forensic pathologist and a, an author of textbook of textbooks on on pathology, on on the heart. He was both a forensic pathologist and a heart specialist. When I decided to engage him, I didn't want him to know what it was that we were examining. I wanted a blind test. So with a little bit of poetic license, I wrote to him saying, I'm a lawyer working on a forensic case. I need to be able to identify certain material on a microscopic slide. Um, it's a very sensitive subject, but I'll tell you all about it after you've given us the results. So I flew to New York from Sydney with Australia's most qualified senior journalist, Mike Willisey, and we went there to hear him say what he found in terms of this, this, this item. So he permitted me to set up a camera to film his progress of examination and what he said. So I'm able to walk away with enabling the viewer to be in that room and to hear what was said in this historic moment. It was certainly historic. I felt it when he was saying his words. He's looking down the microscope and he says, Heart tissue. Uh, there's a inflammatory infiltrate here the heart tissue itself is degenerating is degenerated in other words this is what happens sometimes after a, a a heart attack this is a person that had a heart attack but not it's not a immediate in other words the person had to have lived a period of time after this now, there's other things that can cause this type of a item that resembles a heart attack. In automobile accidents, uh, where they get uh, chest crushes and it causes uh, uh, damage, 
uh, to the heart. You get it from a person getting beat up across the chest. You get, uh, you get coronary uh, injuries from that. You get coronary injuries from people who gave CPR incorrectly and a person comes out of it, that area may uh, 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 die off. The injury hit this area of the heart, right here. The heart is one area that I know. Yep. This is my business. I think, I think it actually comes from about, uh, about right in this area, right in here. And what's the function of that part of the heart? That's the left ventricle. That's a major uh, area that pumps the blood to all parts of the body. Now, what's the history? Uh, could you imagine what we think Mike Willisie and I were thinking as he was saying those things? We were the only two people in the room. In here, he is looking down a microscope, giving us historical lesson on the passion of Christ. But the interesting thing he says was that, he says, I'm living, looking at a living heart. This is a snapshot of a living heart. But I can date the time of the injury from this snapshot. The injury occurred about three days before this snapshot. Uh, now, why he can tell that is that there, there is a, a dating method that's, that pathologists can use to determine how long before the compromising of the blood supply occurred. Because, or I can tell, because in the process of the um, deterioration of the tissue, it happens over a period of time, and you know from the beginning to the end, and you can slot this in in that time scale. But he was able to say three days beforehand. Afterwards, I came back when I was thinking about all this. I then, how, how, how could he? What's the significance of three days? We know that Jesus died on the Friday, and that Passion was on the Friday. Um, how does the three days fit him? And a theologian told me. You know that when we receive communion, we receive Jesus at the moment of the resurrection, which means that we're receiving him three days after the Passion, and he's alive. So in other words, that microscopic slide was telling us, giving us a teaching on the nature of the Eucharist, is a memorial of his Passion, his death, and resurrection. You can imagine how we felt when he was going going through all of this, but he um, we eventually told him the where it had come from after he'd been through all of this, and he says, you know, this is this is quite amazing. He says, uh, you say that that tissue was in water for three years before a sample was taken. He says that doesn't correspond with what I see in the microscope because those white blood cells should have deteriorated within minutes of being put in the water, somehow or other. It was preserved contrary to science. So you've got this, um, this strange anomaly that you've got white blood cells in there that are still vivid and living, and they should not be there because they'd been in water. Um, the other thing was that um, he, I mean, he was quite surprised that we, this was a piece of communion host that had this uh, heart tissue and living cells in it. He says, because heart tissue does not normally have white blood cells in them they come in to address injury. But they have to come from somewhere. They have to come from another part of the body. How do they get into the, into the Eucharist? You know, he says, um, he says this, is, this, this is a real mystery that this, this has happened. He says, I, I, can't, I can't scientifically comprehend how this is possible. But he's telling us this. Um, so 
it's it's a it's a very important finding because um it it it, it strengthens all that we understand and believe about the Eucharist that Jesus is present in there he is alive and that and also that he has suffered and so um it's a very important um finding now people will say oh, how can you how can you believe all of this this has happened well we know that science holds the gold standard for knowledge in our world we, we look to science to give us answers and the response about faith is that faith is 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 there's a domain of myth and superstition but what happens when science looks at this subject and says this bread has turned into living human heart in the eucharist it's like you could not get a better endorsement for our belief in the eucharist so few of us believe that jesus is present in the eucharist you know the surveys that have been done in the united states where they say that only 20% of people at best believe that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist and that about 11% of people go to Mass. Um, this, this story now gives us a new basis for faith in that, in that, in that teaching. And, you know, we, we'd be afraid as Catholics going out in the real world and saying, you know what, we go to church, Catholic Mass, and we receive communion. In that post is God. We believe that God comes into that host. It's Jesus truly present as if he was standing here on earth. If you stood out in the street or said that anywhere in public, they'd say you'd be crazy. All we now have to do is produce what the science has said about this particular item, and we're not so crazy. And so it'll, it'll give us a lot more confidence to believe what the church teaches. The other thing is that he, he's also showing to us his heart and his heart that suffered. You, you probably know the, most Catholics would know the, the, the revelation to St. Margaret Mary in France in the 17th century, where Jesus appeared to St. Margaret Mary and said, showed his heart. He says, look at my heart, which suffers. It suffers because of the ingratitude of man and disrespect towards the Eucharist, something along those lines. And he said, I want you to go to the king, to Louis XIV, and tell him, that I want my heart honoured. I want to be given the dignity and respect that I was denied when I was on earth by the leaders of the world. Here's the chance to make that redress. Go and tell him to put on his emblem my sacred heart and to honour it. And if he does this, this country will be blessed. And of course we know he didn't do that. And 100 years to the day, there was the French Revolution, which brought down the church and brought down, brought, down, brought down the monarchy and brought down religion. And then began the Enlightenment thinking that we all know about and which, which our world has permeated our world, that there's nothing to be found in religious matters, nothing to be found in the Bible that's of any value to help our way. But strangely enough, there's no book of science they can tell us how or why a piece of bread could turn into human flesh and blood. But there is a book written 2,000 years ago, the Bible, where Jesus spoke about bread and wine becoming his flesh and blood. All of a sudden now, the book that they rejected in the Enlightenment becomes the answer 
to the solution to this problem that we now have on hand. And it's sort of an interesting reversal of things in a way because God is now saying through this story and the other Eucharistic miracles, which we'll mention in a moment, uh, where a piece of bread is turned into flesh and blood and human and heart, God is stepping into this world again to reinforce, this is my, my interpretation of these things, to reinforce what he said to St. Margaret Mary. I want my heart honoured. And the corollary of that is, if you honour my heart, I will bless your country. I will bless the world. I think he's giving us that opportunity. You know, if you were to go into a, a Catholic church and bring a man from Mars in there and stand him up there in the line of communion line and ask him, what do you think is happening there? All those people walking up there and this bloke out the front giving him something white. Oh, yeah, I'd say, they're giving him a cookie or bus tickets or something. Oh, no, no. That's God. That's the creator of the universe. That's what we believe. Oh, no, he would say. You don't, they don't believe that. There's nothing in their demeanour that really shows that's our creator there. And I think that's our problem. I mean, I think people who receive communion do it with the utmost reverence and respect, but without the knowledge that comes from what we now find in these, in these stories, that's God himself saying, I'm, I'm here and I'm giving you a, a special privilege to receive me, but not only to receive me, but my heart, the heart that suffered in the passion, the heart that showed its love for you, and I want to place my heart next to yours when you receive that communion as a foretaste of being in paradise. You know, if that sort of reflection on the Eucharist was given in a church, there would be traffic jams of people coming to church because they've never heard that. I mean, you answer your question, answer this question. Have you ever heard in a church someone talk about the Eucharist in that way to make people want to come, create the universe? coming to you to place his heart next to yours as a foretaste of being in heaven. You probably never. Yeah. Tell them if you have. No. Well, anyhow, the point about it is, it is dramatic information which could reverse this whole trend. You know, when you think of honour being given to a king, all we've got to look at is the coronation event in England, in England of Queen Elizabeth. What man is capable of doing to honour a king that's an earthly king. We never see that honour to the earthly king. And strangely enough, Queen, of England, Queen Elizabeth said, I am here at the, at, at the altar to honour that other king because that's what my role is as the leader of the Church of England. So it's, 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 I think it's incumbent upon people who, he's been giving a bit of a sermon, but I think it follows on from this story, that um, if we really believe that Jesus is present, as he's demonstrating in these Eucharistic miracles, then our attitude to the Eucharist should change and that we should start to begin to give that honour. Could you imagine what it would be like if every Catholic school in the world, every parish in the world, took a day off on the Feast of Corpus Christi and honoured the heart of Christ, honoured him, our King, to, to, to lead the way in the belief. I know in the United States at the moment, We've decided to have a Eucharistic renewal because of the failure of people to understand what we truly receive in the Eucharist. Let's hope that type of inspiration comes because in the olden days that was done. I remember seeing photos of Sydney back in the 1950s when they had a Eucharistic procession through Sydney 
every street was filled with nuns and priests, brothers, people, school children, all there to honour our Lord. That was in the 1950s. Since then, there's been nothing like that happened in Sydney. So, you know, that's one, one thing that you know, could well follow. Just a quick note before we return. If you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesitenews.com. And now, back to the video. One of the things that you mentioned was that this is not the only this you've been talking about the miracle in in Buenos Aires that you went to investigate but you've also investigated other eucharistic miracles and what i find totally fascinating about it is they're they're spread out in time they 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 come from different parts of the world from different countries uh, some of them happened centuries ago some of them more recent yet they're all strikingly similar tell us about those similarities it is interesting that they've all happened in the last 14 or 15 years from Buenos Aires in 1996 to, to the latest of the ones that I've followed closely in Lenixa, Poland in 2013. But in each of these cases, there's, there's been a communion host that has transformed in the context of a Catholic mass. And when examined by different experts, different laboratories, different witnesses, the finding was similar that the bread had transformed into heart, heart, heart tissue and a heart that had suffered. And um, the, uh, there were slight variations in the, in, in the facts, but the general thing of interest is that they've got similar findings, that a, a piece of bread has transformed into human heart and a heart that has suffered. So it's a confirmation. I mean, in science, they say, you know, you can't take one item by itself because that could be just an anomaly. It has to be replicated. Well, it's not too bad now that we have four in a row in recent years all saying the same things. You know, you'd think that if this sort of event, this sort of finding was made known, it would make front page news. Can you imagine the ramifications if you stood out somewhere in the street and said, you know what, in the world today, a piece of bread has turned into human heart. Oh, that's a no, that can't happen. We now know it did happen, and so um, the effect of it on society eventually will, will follow. You know, it's a funny way. God has now decided to put his head into the science class. He was denied before. Now he has, and they're not, they can't walk away from that now. And we'll talk about more about that in my next interview. But um, we did a series of pathology tests on the Buenos Aires case and uh, DNA testing. When we did nuclear DNA testing, which is the looking at the information within the, within the nucleus of the cell, in numerous tests we were unable to get a human genetic profile. The profile you get in the normal standard nuclear DNA test is a profile which is a combination of the DNA from the father and the mother in the one code. And the question is, why in none of these tests do we get any code at all? If we had got a code, then we could almost certainly say it couldn't be Jesus's blood because we know he didn't have a father and God would not be confusing the world by 
I think, by allowing a father's identity to show up, which could only come about to a sexual union. So whilst it's a non, it's a no event, it's 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 an important event in the sense that everything else is showing up that this blood is human, but no code. It may well be that this is a demonstration you know, scientifically that he was born of a virgin. But I'll, I'll leave that later for further testing to confirm it. But on, on we have to place that on the table as a as a as a fact that needs to be addressed in the course of the future DNA testing. We then went ahead and did mitochondrial DNA testing, which is the to determine the the mother's code. And we did forensic testing that deals with ancestry, the ancestral line, the mother's line, which is used in forensic cases and is also used for for uh, genetic testing for hereditary, so you can find out where you come from. And when we uh, subjected this to a, a, a lab in Italy, which has developed the art of being able to take one cell out of, an, out of a sample, open that up and look into it. Up until this time, there had not been this technical ability because what would normally happen in DNA testing is that you'd get the sample that you find on the crime scene, put it into the, into the pot, boil it up, and then try and extract the DNA. And you'll probably get contamination DNA coming out and, and uh, you, know, you might get a mixture of DNA information. But with this technology that pulls out the cell, the white blood cell from the item, you, you bypass the contamination problem. The lab that had mastered the art of doing this uses technology that's like facial recognition. It goes into the cell and says, this is what a white blood cell looks like. And so we, we'll grab those and put them into another slot where we open them up and look at the DNA. But what they found when they were looking at the um, information, what they said to us was that the white blood cells didn't look like they normally should look, but we're treating them as white blood cells. We ended up getting a test result which showed a DNA profile from the mother's line. There was additional information in it, which I may talk about a bit later. But what we have got is a code, information, which would point to it, to it being the code of Mary, the Jesus, or the person's mother. It's the mother's code that would go back, you know, in, in line through the mother, back to presumably Adam, I don't know. However, we've got information which is a good reference point to future work that can be done on the shroud about the maternal line. Now, what is also interesting is that I've mentioned briefly yesterday, and I'll mention again today, that we studied a parallel story, additional phenomenon that was occurring in Bolivia of a statue of Christ that had been crying and bleeding. We also did a series of genetic testings on that blood. We found, first of all, in the pathology that this blood was issued, it came from a person, and this person had suffered traumatic injuries, and that when we took a sample from this statue, the forensic pathologist says, look, this is not just blood. There's skin, there's epidermis attached to this blood. And it's part of the, it's, it's, it's part of the clot that forms to protect the body from bleeding 
after you've been injured. There is a process that's gone on here. And they said that this could not possibly come from an inanimate object. When we did the blood testing on the DNA, we also got no human genetic profile from that blood, from the nucleus. We then subjected that blood to the same testing that was done on the Eucharistic Miracle of Buenos Aires with single cell technology. And we got the same maternal line as we did in the Eucharistic Miracle. It's fascinating stuff. Now, you talk about um, the, the, the other cases in Poland and in uh, Sokolka and Lignica. They didn't do this testing that I'm aware of. It's only relatively new, so it'll be interesting time. But it, it bypasses this whole question about uh, uh, blood types because we didn't do blood typing in the Buenos Aires case because we could we knew that we could use our samples to get more direct information. There may be 100 or 200 people in the world who have AB blood or whatever it is. It doesn't point to Christ. It's interesting that there may be similarities, but it's not specific enough, and that's why we didn't do it. So we didn't do a blood type on, in this case, although I know in the other case they have done blood types and they've matched. But it, to a skeptic, is going to say, but there are plenty of others in the world who's got that blood type. It doesn't prove it's Jesus. It's interesting, but the coincidence of there being three in a row in these cases is certainly good to have. But this new information is even more specific, particularly when we have the opportunity now of being able to do similar tests on the Shroud of Turin with the same technology and make comparisons. And that approach I have attempted to make to Pope Francis um, for those testing, that testing. But it's an interesting coincidence that the person who initially started my investigation was Pope Francis when he was the Archbishop of the city. Now, after 20 years, when I need to knock on the door of the Vatican to finish my investigation on this Buenos Aires case, the man to open that door is the man who started the investigation. No one's been able to get access to do any more studies on the Shroud since the advent of Pope, John, of Pope Francis. I think I've got a good chance in this story, but I'm still waiting for an answer. However, it stands there poised as an important test to be done for the benefit of the church. And hopefully that will happen in time. But I want to just move on to one little point. You know, Pope Francis started this story in terms of asking for the investigation. I presented the Zugabi results to him personally in Buenos Aires on the 17th of March, 2006. And he was aware of what had happened there. And we asked him, is it okay if we tell the story publicly? And he said, yes. And since that time we have, but the Pope has constrained himself from speaking about it for reasons I don't know. But what is very interesting is that in 2019, in December, the English newspapers were reporting that the chaplain to Queen Elizabeth II had converted to Catholicism. And one of the reasons he gave was because of he, how impressed he was with the scientific findings of the Eucharistic miracle of Buenos Aires. He was actually reading my report of it. He then said, in this newspaper article. I think that the Protestants have been wrong in denying transubstantiation since the time of the Reformation. 
I'm changing my view. Now that's an important statement and that's an important effect that this story has. He's changing ship from the, imagine it, from the top of the Her Church of England in one sense. I mean, the, the Queen is the head of the Church of England. He's there as the spiritual head, chaplain to the Queen, who's decided the Protestants went the wrong way. It's interesting, and I think that, I mean, they, when, when a Protestant who has been having trouble with this whole concept of Catholic belief and transubstantiation hears about this story, they're certainly going to do some rethinking, just like Bishop Ashenden did when he came across the story. So it's, it's great news. And, and could you imagine if the Pope would take the same lead to talk about the story in view of these results? Perhaps in time he will. But in the meantime, there's a hell of a gap. And so we have to make up that difference. And that's why countless people need to see your documentary and read your book. Because I think... Um, it's called My Human Heart. Uh, it's available. Where is it available? Well, it's available online. You just type in My Human Heart or otherwise reason to believe. Now, on the front of that cover, just let everyone take a mental photograph of that shot. That is the heart in the Buenos Aires case found in the Eucharist. Every time you receive communion, think of that. The creator of the universe has placed his heart in that communion host. And in that, uh, picture is the story, the white blood cells that are alive, the heart tissue that are suffering. It's a, a, a memorial of his passion, death, and resurrection in that heart tissue, in that photograph. So it's um, so anyway. There's there's a promotion for the book, but the um, uh, otherwise, I just go to reason to believe. Just type in reason to believe, and believe it or not, there's 2.5 billion entries under reason to believe. I'm on the first page. That will give you the website to be able to get, look at the work I've done. In particular, uh, this book and the other documentaries that I've done on the Eucharistic Miracle. So we yeah, only encourage people to do it. They can go to the website, see the documentary and share it. It's free. Um, and I'm sure um, many people will be touched by it as you have. You've got in there a theological truth that I think a lot of people, even Catholics, many Catholics who believe and receive and even believe in transubstantiation, did they know that when they receive our Lord, they're not receiving just the crucified body of Christ, died perhaps, they might think. They're actually receiving the resurrected body of Christ. And uh, there's, so there's a beautiful theological insight in there that many people probably didn't know. So it's beautiful to come out through your work here. What an amazing blessing to have been doing this, to be like you were as we as we spoke of when we we did the um show on the stigmata of Katya Rivas <laughs> the one to be able to show the world that um you make the world like Thomas to be able to see to be able to sort of figuratively put their fingers in the wounds uh to be able to see and here you are to be able to show them the truth the reality of the presence of Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist Ron what a blessed life God bless you and thank you. Thank you very much, John Henry. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time.
Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.